Galatians 6, verses 11 to 18. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for this word, and we ask you to bless this uh, message that uh, you would have everyone to hear what it is exactly that would uh, fit into their spirits, Lord, and cause them to be the children that you want them to be. In Christ's name, you may be seated. So last uh, July 5th, I think it was, I gave uh, a talk on First Peter, which was the name of the church down in Lincoln, Living Stones, and then July 12th, the next week, we started on Galatians. And so this is the 20th sermon in Galatians, and it ends the book. I think Mr. Monk would be proud. Nice even 20. We uh, start at verse 11 with, See what large letters I have written to you in my own hand. Uh, this is kind of unusual. And as, as a matter of fact, I went back to like what uh, Calvin wrote about this. And what I've found through, through my studies recently, and, and actually in the last few years is that when you're looking for things that kind of technically comment on the content of the Bible, um, sometimes the technical stuff really hadn't been devised yet when the Reformers were writing. Um, and so since, they, since their time, when they wrote, there have been a lot of things that we've learned about the Bible. And for instance, one of the things that uh, John Calvin mentioned concerning this is see with what large letters I have written to you he regarded it as the, the size of the letter, the size of Galatians. And nearly no modern scholar would believe that that's what was intended. Uh, what it is is that uh, there were scribes that wrote pretty much all the letters back in the time of Christ, back in that day. It was just basically a specialty, kind of like how we have specialties in our culture. Um, for instance, you can look through the history of, uh, of uh, the gasoline industry like gasoline engines came about in the late 1800s. And to get gas for your uh, tractor or, or if you had a motorbike back then or something, uh, you had to go to the railroad because at the end of the railroad in the town that was closest to you, they had a big storage tank of fuel. And you'd get fuel out of that tank. That's pretty much how you did it for like 30 years. And as automobiles became more and more popular, people, it was inconvenient to go to that tank all the time and get uh, some big tank and haul it out to your farm and put it on your property to fill up your, your vehicles. And then full-service gas stations came in. But then, of course, we all know that they went out in the 70s. Everybody went to self-serve. And so things change over time. And uh, when I was in boot camp, that was the first time I probably heard the word scribe. And uh, thereafter, after the first few days, you'd hear it all the time. The DI would open the door, scribe, get in here. And then the guy that had been chosen as the scribe would go running down to the uh, DI's office, and what he was calling him to do was write a letter, write some type of 
communication because I guess DIs can't do that. And, uh, and the DIs would then have the scribes type up their uh, plan of the day and they would tuck it in their smoky. And so then you'd always see the, the uh, DI throughout the day taking a smoky off and looking at his cheat sheet and slipping it back in. But uh, that's in my introduction to this whole possibility or concept of scribe. And that's what was happening. Paul uh, references in several of his letters that he was using a scribe. And yet here, at the tail end of the letter, he wrote the ending personally. And it was quite common for him or anybody writing a letter to do that. And so he wrote it personally for a few reasons that you can probably imagine. One is it authenticates it. He even says, in my own hand. So this authenticates this as a letter coming from Paul. Uh, the second is that it made it personal. It wasn't just this impersonal letter that went to them, dictated by you. You added a personal touch to it. And also, and especially in the case of Galatians, it allowed him to personally highlight in his own hand what he considered most important in the letter he'd written. And Galatians especially does that. In most of his letters, he really didn't take advantage of that option to highlight the, the entire letter. But uh, I was very tempted, but it would have been too tedious to weave all of what he shared here in these few verses throughout the whole book of Galatians because he takes practically the whole book and reiterates it via these highlights. Uh, but like I said, it would have been tedious. In my Bible, I have all kinds of notes, and I thought, oh, this would get kind of complex, and it's not necessary. But uh, to give you a recap of what he's talking about, we just need really expound on these four verses from 12 to 15. So 12 and 13 are talking about the Judaizers. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. There are three things here, three motives or desires that the Judaizers have. First, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. So they want to make a good showing in the flesh. It's kind of prideful. The second thing is that they do not want to suffer persecution. And so these Judaizers are doing what they feel is necessary to avoid that. And the third is that they do want to boast to their fellow Jews that they have kind of gotten the Gentiles to adopt this practice of circumcision. It's their bragging rights then. So these are the three things that the Judaizers, in, uh, from Paul's uh, informed perspective, want. That's what the Judaizers want, and that's what they're doing in Galatia. Uh, this letter was written not to one church, but to multiple churches in the province of Galatia. He had been there probably uh, no longer than eight months earlier, and he had been there for about a year and a half. So he's writing to these churches that he's just left, and they're already beginning beginning to fall apart. They're suffering uh, the onslaught of what we would consider heresies. So these goals or motives can really be further collapsed because the first and the last are very similar. And I would uh, call them self-aggrandizement and self-protection. That's their main goal. They want to make much of themselves and they don't want that much to be picked on. They don't want any persecution. So that's the Judaizers' goals. They want to look good. And you can see the words here. They have desire, showing, making good showing. Again, desire, and then boast. All of these are words that really talk about the flesh. We're talking about these people wanting to 
honor their own flesh and see it honored above any, uh, anybody else's. And then also self-protection. Uh, Paul even says this is the only reason they're doing this. They do not want to be persecuted. They're only doing all of this to avoid persecution. Now, the question I have is this. We already talked about their goals. It has these boasting rights and then the self-protection. But why would something as seemingly trivial as these Galatian uh, Gentile believers adopting circumcision, how could it lead to all of that? How could these uh, Judaizers benefit in, so greatly from them just adopting circumcision? I mean, he even says they don't even want you to keep the rest of the law. They just want you to be circumcised. So how is that possible? Okay, I think in order to talk about that, we want to talk about the time in which this occurred and the time in which Paul was talking and living. So we already know that the Jewish nation was under Roman control, had been for a long time. Prior to that, it had been under Grecian control. So they were a, a, a state that was used to being ruled by other states, had been for hundreds of years. So Judaism, however, was tolerated within Rome, within the Roman provinces. Uh, Judaism was probably the weirdest religion, the most finicky, the most picky, the least malleable to Roman control. And yet they had survived until now, and yet they had made huge concessions. And uh, partly I'm drawing from Phil's wealth of, of sermon, uh, sermons that he taught on Acts because he went into all this in great detail. So if I gloss through something that puzzles you, let me know, and I can uh, guide you to where it is in Acts that uh, Pastor Kaiser spoke of it. But uh, so we have from two perspectives, I want to kind of share this. One is from the, the governmental perspective, government in terms of the Roman government, but also in terms of the Jewish religious government. So that's kind of the first perspective. And the next perspective is really just from the Joe in the seat, the average believers, both Jews that had come to Christ and Gentiles that had come to Christ. So why is this all important? What's the big deal? Now, Jews were jealous of the growth of Christianity, very jealous. And now here we are nearly 20 years after Christ's death, and they've seen Christianity grow immensely, and they're jealous of that. Judaism isn't growing like that. The Jews are also dismayed by the popularity of Christ. They presumed that Jesus would be a flash in the pan, just like all other would-be would -be, uh, saviors. And yet, it hasn't gone away. It's gotten big. It's taking over. And they're upset about this. But they're not nearly as upset about that as they are about this position of prominence that Christ has, this position of worship that Christ has. That outrages them. They're really offended at the fact that they're worshiping this man as if he were God. So that's from the Jewish perspective. And Judaism yet is being tolerated. Judaism has none of these problems. And yet Christianity is identified with Judaism. And so if things are taking off and heating up for the Christians, the Jews are really beginning to take some of that heat from the Roman leaders. And they don't want to have to deal with it. They don't want to have to make, it, make uh, up excuses for their people that are embracing this newfangled sect of Judaism. At that time, that's how they thought of it. So... That's from kind of the leader's perspective. You can see the leaders getting upset about what's going on, both the Romans and the Jews. And yet, at the belief level, at the believer level, what are they faced with? Well, the Jews are embracing Christianity, and they're coming under attack for it from their fellow Jews. 
So they're being ostracized from their communities. They're being kicked out of their synagogues. And here is a way by which they can really retain their rights in the local synagogue, retain their relationships with the local Jews. All they have to do is be circumcised. That's all they have to do. And they are circumcised. And so all they have to do is admit that that was necessary to be a Christian. So see, now the Jew is essentially being enlisted. The Jewish Christian is being enlisted by the Jewish uh, non-Christians to say, well, I know you're circumcised and that makes you acceptable, but these other Gentiles are not circumcised. They need to be circumcised in order to be under your protection, in order to be acceptable to us Judaistic Jews. So the Jewish believers then would be tempted to play down their faith, play down these distinctives that set the Christian apart from the Jew, because the further they get out from under the Jewish umbrella, the more exposed they are to persecution by the Romans. And the more the Judaistic Jews want to have them uh, cast up to the uh, Romans for persecution. So it's a, it's a tight line that many of these believers are walking. We've all faced, I believe, this tight line. Many of us that have come to faith in the midst of a non-faith life, uh, your whole world is turned upside down. And uh, there are immediate people that obviously see the effect and they know you're different now, you're weird. And yet there are other people that didn't yet learn just how weird you are. And so when they meet you, when you meet them later, they're just trying to act as if nothing has changed. And you're tempted to act as if nothing has changed because you want to be accepted. You want to retain the relationship with this person that you used to have. So being Jewish also was something that was really in many ways outward. That was what uh, Jesus complained about. He complained, you Jews, it's all about the outward appearance. It's all about show, nothing about the heart. And so these uh, new fangled Christians who used to be Jews, they could perhaps enjoy all the benefits of a, of a walk with God and yet still really outwardly go through all the rituals and all the stuff. Uh, I believe Roman Catholics are tempted to do that when they come to Christ. They try to justify the church that they're in. They try to embrace that and yet at the same time embracing the faith and the, and the, the supremacy of Scripture in their life and they try to to keep those together for as long as they can because they don't want to give up their Roman Catholic heritage, their Roman Catholic friends. Now, there is in our nature a desire to not cause conflict, seek a win-win solution to everything. And uh, some of us maybe don't have that too much because some of us are almost contrarians. We're almost picking fights with everybody. But, but for the rest of us, you know, for most of us, I think we do kind of want to live at peace with all men. And uh, let me give you an illustration. That was going on here. I mean, everybody wanted a win-win. And let me give you, introduce to you a uh, topic in which I wanted a win-win also. I won't finish it out. I'll finish it in a few minutes, but I'll just start it. I shared this once, but I believe it was a long time ago. I was a young Marine. I was going to school off base, and I was in this computer lab, and uh, during the lab, you're, like two or three hours a night, every Tuesday or Thursday or whatever, I'd go to this lab, and I'd be sitting there just typing my program. Well, there, were, there was a conversation going on over here, and this young woman was just getting really upset about how when she was at Sacramento City College, these Christians would get all over her and her friends about playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm just slinking down in my chair, thinking, oh, I don't know her. I don't want to know her. I'm just happy here writing my code. You know, I'm in class. I don't need to deal with this. 
Well, God had other plans, and I'll get to those in a minute. But first I want to talk about this whole win-win thing. The battle between good and evil. Is it a win-win situation? No. Winners and losers, you know. We live in this politically correct time where everybody's got to be a winner. I'm afraid it doesn't work that way. I think it's best if we teach our children how to lose with grace, how not to think that because all the 30 kids in the class got a gold star, you're all equally able in whatever you got the star for. But so Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. What did he mean by that? What can you infer from that? What you can infer from that is that our nanny state will never eradicate the poor from the earth. It just can't be done. They will not overcome all of the things that lead to poverty because we know that much of what leads to poverty is sin and they cannot eradicate sin. So the poor will always be with us. It's just a truth. And so when you see Christians that are really kind of all caught up in the nanny state behavior, you really got to take them to something basic like that and say, hey, it's, it's good to want good stuff for the earth, but you really have to go about it in the right way and you have to have reasonable biblical expectations in what you're going to achieve. Now, why did I bring that up? Let me read another verse from 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So now, what can we learn from the way Paul phrased this? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They are perishing. Present tense, ongoing. It's true now, and it is true for this time. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there are presented in that simple verse these two paths through life, these, true, these two ways. The title of this message is The Way of the Cross. We're contrasting the way of the cross with the way of the world. We've already talked a little bit about the way of the world. And these statements, we are tempted to make them theoretical. Yes, there are these people that are perishing. Yes, there are these people that are being saved. But we are these people, and there are only two paths. And everybody is on one of the paths. Uh, returning from Chicago, uh, we came back, and, and Interstate 80 uh, pretty much it begins at the Quad Cities and goes directly to kind of right in the middle of Chicago. Well, we were going up north, so we took Interstate 88 out there. So we were coming back in to the Quad City areas, and Interstate 88 comes in, and it hits the loop around the Quad Cities. Well, the bridge up north, 80 comes across heading east along the top of the Quad Cities and then comes down to the bottom and then continues east. And that's 80. Well, 88 comes in here right at the middle. And typically, if you're going to follow 80 and go home like we wanted to, you take the northern route. You take 80 west, and you go up and out. It's like maybe 10 miles. Well, they have the bridge closed over the Mississippi on the 80. And so you have to go south, and you have to go around the beltway and then rejoin the 80. But between the time that you get on that loop off of 88 and get down to where 80 continues east, you're on the 80 east. You're going west, but you're going east. It's confusing. I remember coming into the city. I'm like, I've got to pay attention. I, I, I don't want to follow that sign because that sign is going to take me the wrong way, even though that's the way I want to go. And so when we were on the interstate for those seven or eight miles, we're riding with people who are going both east and west on I-80. It was very odd. 
I don't know who they were. I could suspect. I got back in there with someone. There was this little Mini Cooper, and I thought, I'll bet they're going west like me, and they did. But I don't know. I can't tell the difference between all these cars. And see, that's the way life is sometimes. There are these two paths, the way of the world, the way of the cross. Which way are you going? Well, I don't know. I can look at you and I can think, okay, well, is it what you believe that, that indicates what path you're on? Well, the demons believe and tremble, right? So we know it's not just belief. Is it how you behave? Well, I know a lot of people in the Mormons, Mormon camp that behave probably better than me, at least from their perspective. And so I don't think you can judge it based on conduct. So if it's not belief and it's not conduct, what, how are you to dis- differentiate? And then it was interesting because I have a perfect illustration, and it actually occurred within a car. So I think it's in keeping with the car theme here. And uh, Roger Erber is the pastor at the church that sponsored Presbytery back in Harvard, uh, Illinois. And uh, he was telling us in his opening comments that in preparing for Presbytery, he'd driven up to the church that we were going to be using because it's north of where he lives. And he said there is a sign there that's advertising you know, stuff that you wouldn't want to be filling your mind with when you're driving to Presbytery. And he said uh, he'd been praying that that sign would go away. And uh, he wasn't, you know, going to go out there and do anything himself. He wasn't advocating anybody else do that, but he wanted it to go away. And so he's praying to God. And he said Tuesday, the day before Presbytery, it was painted over. The day before Presbytery. And so he, he said he just teared up. He's driving to the up north. He sees that sign. And he just tears up. Why? Why is that? See, that's the distinction. That's the path you're on because you're in communion with God. You've asked him something and he's given it to you. Now, he might not even give it to you. And so at the time that he might have seen that sign and saw that it was still there, he could have easily prayed something else. But he felt that was really a hug from God. It was like, Roger, I know your heart and here I'm giving you this sign. And it was painted over. Now, I don't think one of his sons went out there and did this. He does have a big family and a big church, but I just don't think they're the type. But so he was just overjoyed. And that is what sets believers apart from unbelievers. They're walking with God. They're in a relationship with God. And so my question to you is this. Can people distinguish you from an unbeliever? We know it can't be conduct. We know it can't be beliefs. It has to be something that is holding on to the supernatural. And that's it. It's that walking with God. It's that communion with God. If you can, with confidence, tell the people that you come into contact with, whether they're believers or unbelievers, that you have a relationship with God. God answers your prayers. And people say, how? How on earth does your God do I I can't explain it. In this instance, it was like this. In that instance, it was like that. It's always different. I can't tell you, but I know that God communicates these things to me. So see, that's what sets us apart. That's what sets believers apart from unbelievers. Now, back to the lab. So I'm in this computer lab, and this young woman by the name of Tracy is, is venting her wrath on these fellow students, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know Tracy. I don't, I don't even know her. I mean, minutes later, she comes over to me. And she says, you're at the base, right? I said, you know, short haircut. Yeah. She said, can you give me a ride home? And I'm thinking, 
Now, I, I don't know. If you've never heard this story, this gets more interesting. Now, I had been in a rush after work. So I got off work at, I forget, 4.30. And I'd ran out to the Bible store before coming to class. And at the Bible store, I'd bought Bible junk. And I had a Bible that I'd bought for my mom, and I had it all open on the seat. I had, I had para, biblical paraphernalia spread all over my car. In my back window, I had a picture of Jesus and a picture of Satan in my back window. And I had on my bumper sticker, are you ready for the rapture? <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, you had to ask me. I mean, I look around, half the class is filled with Marines, but you had to ask me. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, why did you do this to me? But, you know, it's not win-win for God. You know, he had a plan for Tracy. And as uh, cowardly as I was, I was a part of that plan. So I said, yes, I can take you back to your base. I can take you back to your, your barracks. So we go walking out there. And of course, I had been conniving how I could maybe get out to my car earlier, but I just thought, oh, it's just too late. So we go walking out to my car in the parking lot. And I said, excuse me. I, I walk her around to the passenger side. I'm a gentleman. I open the door. She sees the stickers, of course. So I'm getting, uh, gathering up all this Bible stuff and dumping it in the back seat. I said, there you go. So I walk around and hop in. Silence. I mean, she didn't talk at all. I didn't talk at all. We drive all the way back to the barracks, 25 minutes, you know. Didn't say a word. But it, the, story, the story goes on. Uh, the next week, we had a substitute teacher, and he is a Christian at the local seminary, the Westminster Seminary that Phil attended. And I go up and I see him reading his Bible. I'm like, oh, I see you're reading the Bible. He's Psalm 22. Oh, Psalm 22. And I mean, he just blows me away with what he's doing The Psalm 22. Yes, I'm dissecting it for the class and blah, blah. I'm like, mm. man, I thought it's, it's like he's talking about a bug, not the Bible. <laughs> but, uh, but very loving man. And uh, so anyway, Tracy comes over because I'm her ride now. And uh, I'm sitting down talking to this teacher and he's just talking over my head. I mean, I'm, I'm just... And so we start witnessing to Tracy because she starts acting all, uh, asking all these questions. I'm an Armenian at the time. And I said, well, Tracy, it's really up to you. You know, God presents to you the information and you make the choice. It's your will. And he angles his chair at me. He starts pointing at me. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I'm a Christian. And he's saying, can you tell me in Scripture where the... And so I, I'm like, oh, can you tell me? He takes me to Romans 8.28. Can you tell me what predestination? I know. I don't know what that means. Well, anyway, I'm reformed in a conversation with this guy. I mean, he knows the Bible really well, and he's opening up areas to me I've never seen. So meanwhile, though, Tracy has been converted. I mean, she has gobbled this up just like me. I've gone from being an Arminian to being a Calvinist, and she's gone from being an unbeliever to a believer. But again, we're leaving, and she's trying to talk to me. And I'm not even, I'm just like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is great stuff. <laughs> I'm totally oblivious to what's going on in her life. I mean, it just goes to show you how selfish and self-centered I was at that time, and maybe still. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, that is the power of God at work. And in Isaiah 55, I wanted to read a section. Isaiah 55, verses uh, 6 to 11. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. 
Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And I'll stop reading every verse there and just skip ahead to 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. When we quote that, I mean, everybody, who doesn't understand my thoughts are not your thoughts? Uh, your ways are not my ways. Uh, but yet it's in the context of God explaining to Isaiah that God's word is going to work its wonders in our world. And we don't know how it happens. We just can't explain it. But yet God doesn't require that we explain it. It's supernatural. We can't explain it. And yet we can enjoy it. We can go along for the ride. We can be ready to make requests of God and then wait upon him for the answers. It's just a beautiful way of living your life. It is the miraculous that God wants us to participate in every day. God doesn't want us just going through life with knowledge and with actions. So we've got these, right? You know, we're Presbyterians. We've got the knowledge in spades. We're over here. We've got the actions somewhat. But Do we really live miraculous lives? I mean, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to live in constant communication with him. He wants to have us as like we're chefs on the stove, and we've got all kinds of things going on. We've got this request, that request. You know, and it's not that we're just gimme, gimme, gimme. We're plugged into what God wants us to do. We're excited about this supernatural aspect of life. So... Now we come in Galatians 6 to the uh, way of the cross. Verses 12 and 13 describe the Judaizers. Uh, Paul summarized them for them. But he said, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. So... The Judaizers wanted to boast in their accomplishments, and Paul is saying no. And the Judaizers, the only reason they were pursuing this, the text says, is only so that they could avoid persecution. And so I want to take those two words, boast and only, and apply them to Paul. Paul, on the other hand, boasts only in the cross. And he doesn't care about anything else. None of the rest of it matters. None of the stuff that concerned the Judaizers concerns Paul. He doesn't care if his pouring out the truth about the cross leads to his hearers accepting it or rejecting it. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if it leads to him being praised or ridiculed. He doesn't care if it leads to him being blessed by them or beaten by them. He just didn't care. He did what it was he needed to do. And he no longer boasts of anything. Now, we, I believe, boast of many things. I mean, I know myself. I boast of many things. We boast of our accomplishments. We boast of our children's accomplishments. We boast of our knowledge. We boast of our skills. We might not do it blatantly, but we do it. We boast of our children's intelligence, as if we had anything to do with that. We boast of their good conduct. And yet, all of this is boasting in ways that's really unhealthy, unless this extends from the cross, unless it comes out of Christ. And so see, all all of our pride, all that which we have pride in, should only be because we thank God for it. 
So all of the things I mentioned are wonderful things. We want those things. We achieve those things, and we're thankful. We're grateful. We're prideful. And that's not in and of itself bad, but only if it's anchored in God, in His uh, faithfulness, in His blessing, in His uh, providing for us all of these many things. We have nothing in and of ourselves. We don't even have life. We don't even have breath. All of it comes from God. So, Verse uh, 14, the latter part, says, By whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's speaking of the cross of the Lord Jesus. By whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, the world has been crucified to me, I think, is fairly self-explanatory. The world being crucified to Paul means that the world has nothing to offer him. The world has fame, wealth, power. Paul had all of those. He had all, all of those from his youth. I mean, he speaks of himself, and he was from a wealthy family in Tarsus. He was a Roman citizen. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. He had all of the fame and wealth and power. He was on that track, and yet he counts it rubbish. So the world has been crucified to Paul. But what does it mean that Paul was crucified to the world? What does the flip side mean? I think you really have to think about that. What it is, I believe, is this. The world cannot get anything from Paul. The world has no interest in befriending Paul because they can't use him for anything that leads to them being famous or wealthy or powerful. Paul just isn't going to offer them that. He will not be used in that way. Lenin referred to Western communist sympathizers as useful idiots. And we Christians live at a time when we Christians are often useful idiots to the political powers that be. Uh, I read a book last fall called Tempting Faith by a man who was uh, on the, in the Bush White House on his faith-based initiative. He served in the White House for two years uh, to the leader of that faith-based initiative. And uh, he came to see very clearly that the Bush White House did not take faith very seriously. Uh, it was all just a play for votes. It was all just a play for power. And uh, now we're not for this state-based, faith-based stuff at all, but this guy was. And so he was pretty hurt by it all. And he said that Karl Rove and Karl Rove's associates in the White House would greet them, say hi, smile, bring them in the office, photo ops, all that stuff. But yet he came to find out that they would always be referred to as nuts and goofballs and uh, they just had no respect for the Christians in the White House. And uh, yet they were being used. And as a matter of fact, he believes that he and his office won Ohio for George Bush because uh, they went there and they basically did a tour of the whole state offering these faith-based initiatives. And they got wooed an awful lot of otherwise Democratic voters into the Republican camp by offering this money and offering these promises. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, we Christians are to serve mankind, serve men. We are to bless them. We are to have a vital interest in saving them. But we are never to fear them. And we are never to be used by them for their purposes. So that, I believe, is what it meant that Paul was crucified to the world. They had no value for him. If they didn't want to talk about Jesus, he didn't have anything to say. So if you find yourself being used by people, it's probably true that you'll find that they really have no interest in hearing about Jesus. You might talk about it, and they might tolerate it and smile, but they'll walk away in the end. 
and they'll tell you their friends, oh, that guy's a little off, but, you know, I, he can be my friend because of this, that, and the other thing, you know. He's an eye doctor. I can get free eye operations anytime I want. <laughs> so appearances are nothing. The miracle of rebirth is everything. Wow, am I way ahead of my sermon. I already preached through all this. Okay, let me go to uh, verse uh, 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Uh, Note in your Bible, verse 16 starts, and as many as, and verse 12 starts, as many as. We again see both of the ways captured in this text. As many as desire to make a good show of the flesh. So he's talking about the way of the world. Now here, he's already gone through describing the way of the cross. And here he's saying, and as many as walk according to this rule. He's again describing the way of the cross. Those that walk according to this rule. So see, the way of the world is through desire and experience and through materialism for the most part. Whereas the way of the cross is through sacrifice, through faith, through walking by faith and not by sight, by living miraculously we might not be able to point to anything in our life that we consider to be a miracle, as I guess the Roman Catholic Church would define it. But yet, isn't life miraculous? Isn't our daily communication with an invisible God by which he answers our prayers miraculous? Yes. And so we are called to live miraculous lives in that way. Verse 17 refers to something that uh, the church has regarded as stigmata. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi has says that he miraculously uh, developed this, the, the marks of the Lord Jesus in his body. He developed scars in his wrists and scars in his, in his ankles where Jesus was nailed to the cross. And then various people since that time have also claimed that, that they miraculously have these scars appear. Well, I want to point out something from Scripture. Paul's scars were not miraculously obtained. Christ's scars were not miraculously obtained. They obtained these scars at the hands of people that did not walk the way of the cross. They walked the way of the world. The same way that Jesus got those marks and Paul got those marks is the same way that we'll get those marks, by being faithful to Christ, by preaching the cross, and by sometimes doing that in ways uh, and in places where people don't want to hear it. And it would be very easy for us to shut our mouths and not talk. But we have to ask ourselves, would Paul do that? Would Paul, at this point, shut up so that he could be at peace with all men? You know, we want to be at peace with all men. But we also want to get the message spread and take our licks, if that's what God wants us to do. This verse says, the marks of the Lord Jesus, the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, St. Francis of Assisi says those marks are these. No, I don't think so. I believe what the text means is this. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. It isn't that Jesus himself did it, but it's that the people that did it to Paul wanted to do it to Jesus. So the marks of the Lord Jesus are those that we bear. And Colossians 1 speaks very clearly of this, that our sufferings fill up the sufferings of Christ. That doesn't mean we help in any way with salvation. It means that the church bears as the body of Christ, the blows that the world continues to want to bring to bear on the body of Christ. So as the body of Christ, we serve that purpose for this world. He ends 
with these uh, mutual uh, blessings here. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. So he's qualifying his uh, request for peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, the Israel of God is uh, to make it synonymous with those whom he is referring to, as many as walk. So we're talking about walking. We're talking about walking in obedience to God and making that synonymous with the Israel of God. So he's writing to this church, remember, and this church is caught up in this complexity of whether to be faithful to what Paul has preached that got them into trouble or adopt what the Judaizers are advising them to do, and that is to kind of come under the protection of Judaism. So that's who he's writing to. And he's saying, if you're walking in accordance with the words I'm telling you, then I bless you. If you're not, no blessing. He's just telling them very clearly, no blessing. So then he goes on to say, no one trouble me. Uh, The Galatians gave him grief over who he is, how he's of little stature, so to speak. And uh, when I'm in person, I'm not that impressive, he would say. But yet he had the authority of God. And he uh, is reminding them, this authority comes from God. Do not trouble me in this way. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I am suffering as the body of Jesus on earth. And then he says, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He began this letter and uh, most of you, all of you, perhaps weren't uh, present. I know Toby was present and Josh were present. But uh, I spoke at length about how he starts this letter off at a run, at a gallop. I marvel that you are turning so soon from him who called you to the grace of Christ. Uh, n- nowhere else does Paul start a letter like this. I mean, he, he's very quick to get to the point. He's very quick to rebuke them. So he, he's like he can't wait. But yet now he's spent all of his ammunition. He's tried to convince them through argument, through, through his experience with them, that what he's saying is truthful, that what he is saying should be believed and obeyed. And yet he greets them as brethren. He's embracing them as a brother. He's not allowing the relationship to fester. He's not saying, hey, I know I've been tough on you, so get away from me. He's saying, no, I know I've been tough on you, so come here, brother, I want a hug. That's what he's saying. So brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And here again, I, th- I believe he's pointing at the miraculous. It's not enough to just want blessings upon these people. He wants them to be blessed in the spirit. He wants them to be closer to God for having read this letter than they were before they'd read this letter. He wants them to embrace the miraculous life. And I encourage you to do the same. Talk to God every day. It's, it, what's the benefit of being a Christian if you're not in communion with God? I mean, that's the thing that makes life beautiful. We can be deceived and think that it's all the other things of life, but it's that relationship with God. It's that communion with God when we find that flashlight and find that ring that makes life so special and precious. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your presence now and always. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that we are on the path of the cross, that we are on the road to heaven, that we are uh, perhaps in many ways indistinguishable from others, But Lord, if people spend time with us, if they they scratch the surface, I pray that they would find that there is a person who has a relationship with God, who knows God, who loves God, who talks to God, who hears from God. And so we pray that for everyone here, Lord, that we would all have a deep and abiding relationship with you. And through the power of your Holy Spirit and the work of Christ, that you would knit us together as one body, as one people. Be with us, we pray in Christ's name.
Amen.